Maayang Adlao! Welcome back to Philippine X in Wellness. In our last episode, we spoke with Anna Salumbides about leveraging energy, healing, and intuition, the process of releasing old energy and connecting with our own intuition to hear ourselves again. Wow, what a powerful episode to listen to if you haven't yet. For our final episode of season two, we will be exploring integrative natural health with Dr. David Richard, founder, naturopathic doctor, and licensed acupuncturist. I'm Cheryl Sampson Ramirez. My preferred pronouns are she, her, sha. I'm ethnically Bisayan and Chinese, currently streaming from the traditional territories and still living Chumash, Tongva, and Kich people, colonially known as Los Angeles. Philippine X in Wellness's vision is to support the wellness, of the wellness of the Philippine X community and our global allies through resource sharing, podcast streams, and partnerships with professionals and organizations in order to live healthier, happier, and more fulfilling lives. If you're not following us already, please feel free to follow us at Philippine X in Wellness with a P ending with an X in Wellness on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and on Twitter via the handle at PhilippineX, the letter N, the word well, followed by the letters N and S. We honor this safe space by asking everyone to speak and listen respectfully from your heart throughout our time together. This pre-recorded session can be accessed through our Philippine X and Wellness YouTube channel, Apple Podcasts, and now also on Spotify. We're so thrilled to give our guests wider access globally. As always, we'll be sure to answer any questions that you have sent us via our Instagram stories within our episodes. Please keep in mind that anything that is discussed is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare practitioner for your particular condition, especially before starting any exercise or new health program. Philippine X in Wellness was formed to provide a dialogue around topics that affect the wellness of our community. We're here to also highlight Philippine X individuals and organizations that are actively doing wellness work. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest speaker, Dr. David Richard. Dr. David Richard is a California licensed naturopathic doctor and acupuncturist. He received his doctoral degree in naturopathic medicine and master's degree in acupuncture and oriental medicine from Bastyr University in Seattle, Washington, the nation's leading institution in research and education of science-based natural medicine. Dr. Richard participated in a China externship at Shanghai University's traditional Chinese medicine teaching clinic, where he had additional training in internal medicine gynecology, and the application of Chinese herbal medicine. Dr. Richard founded Integrative Natural Health Incorporated in Claremont, California in 2009. Dr. David Richard's mission is to educate individuals and communities on how to achieve optimal health and wellness in the most natural way possible. Through proper dietary habits, nutritional support, and an emphasis on preventative medicine, Dr. Richard believes everyone can achieve their health goals. He utilizes natural therapeutics, modern medical technology, 
and a knowledge of Western and Eastern medical philosophies to diagnose and formulate treatment plans specifically for the individual. It provides educational tools and lifestyle suggestions that empower individuals to take responsibility of their own health and well-being. We would like to welcome to Philippine Exton Wellness for the first time, Dr. David Richard. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Richard. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And we're excited to listen to what you have to share with our community. Great. Now, something that we always start off with in our episodes is asking our guests, where is your family from in the Philippines and where are you currently streaming from? In case that's different from where you're residing. So my family is from, uh, well, it's my mom. She's from Cavite, uh, specifically Nai Cavite, which is pretty close to Manila. Um, uh, so I'm half Filipino and my father is from Canada, a French Canadian. My, my last name is actually Richard. Um, and he comes from Toronto. So yeah, we've been in um, Southern California. I was born in LA. Uh, my practice is in Claremont, which is about uh, 30 minutes inland from Los Angeles. Right. Yeah. Cool. You know, when you say Toronto, there's also a, a big Pilipinx uh, population there in Toronto. So I was happy oh, to, wow. yeah, I know that Brampton is um, a popular suburb where I have family in and also there's a, a huge Pilipinx uh, population after like the South Asian population that resides there. Well, I was there when I was nine years old, and I got to go back <laughs> <laughs> for to, sure to Toronto. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the T dot, what they say. <clears throat> now, let's start with the basics. Um, for our listeners and viewers, our first podcast episode way back was on East Asian medicine, which included acupuncture. But what is naturopathic medicine, Doctor Richard? So the, there's a technical definition, uh, and then I could tell you a little bit more in layman's terms, but uh, naturopathic medicine is a distinct primary healthcare profession, emphasizing prevention, treatment, and optimal health through the use of therapeutic methods and substances that encourage individuals' inherent self-healing process. Uh, the practice of naturopathic medicine includes modern and traditional scientific and empirical methods. So naturopathic doctors are also called NDs. Um, depending on what, your, what school you go to, there is a school in Arizona that designates the, their graduates as NMDs or naturopathic medical doctors. And uh, the curriculum is pretty similar to going to a medical school to become an MD or a DO in that it's a four or five year program. Um, and emphasizing uh, natural therapeutics. But um, all of the curriculum uh, goes through the basic sciences, the clinical sciences. Diagnoses are pretty much uh, exactly the same as to you know, how we come up with the diagnosis. But treatment is very different, of course. We um, always follow what we call a therapeutic order, uh, where we're using the most gentle, um, non-invasive treatments like dietary changes, um, really observing and finding the obstacles that people need to get over to get their body to heal. Um, and we move through a ladder where we may use some nutrients, we may use some herbs. And then if somebody's not getting to where they need to be, uh, we use 
more pharmaceutical medications, and then the list goes on to more uh, what we consider invasive treatments like surgery, chemo, and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, we are uh, primary healthcare providers, and uh, many of our patients really like the, the fact that we don't jump to pharmaceuticals as first-line therapy. That's pretty profound when you talk about how your emphasis is on preventative measures and actually allowing the body to heal themselves. Why is it that we don't hear too much about naturopathic um, doctors and we hear more about the traditional MD degree or, you know, mm. What's your take on that? Yeah, such a good question. You know, um, we know we live in a pretty capitalistic society and the money really goes into funding pharmaceutical research. And that's the primary uh, education that medical doctors get. And so that's often, you know, where we'll see lots of ads and commercials and you know, where the money is, uh, is often what we're going to see in our, in our media. Um, but we know that a lot of people don't get where they want to go. You know, they, they don't get the, to the healing process. And so they seek other options. Uh, a lot of times they have to figure out, you know, who's the professional that can help them. And um, if they're in a state that licenses naturopathic doctors, uh, it's a lot easier to access, um, there are other alternative practitioners, so you know there's lots of other options. But it's uh, it's it's nice to know that you can go to a professional that um, is formally licensed in the state and has a degree that is you know backing their education. So uh, yeah, that's where naturopathic doctors can really help kind of fill that void of uh, people that really don't want to go all in on um, you know pharmaceutical medications for their treatments. Yeah, you. you... You may often hear of acupuncturists as other practitioners, right? And and mm -hmm. aside from our Western medical practice, but naturopathic doctors is is not often heard of. So maybe our listeners or viewers for the first time might actually be hearing about this angle and didn't even know that it was available. So you mentioned that there were states that licensed naturopathic doctors. So not all states in the U.S., licensed that's, naturopathic that's correct yeah okay and uh, what states are um, those? yeah so i don't have the list in front of me but there was a time when most states licensed the profession um and it was early 1900s you know before pharmaceuticals really started to pick up um okay. really just take over the whole medical system so around 1900 to about the 20s it was very popular uh and then unfortunately you know, pharmaceuticals, well, you know, that's, it's a good thing. There's a, there's a place for pharmaceutical medication, but it really just took over and people abandoned naturopathic medicine up until recently. It's uh, in the seventies, a lot of the schools started to come back on the scene and some states like the whole West coast is licensed, licensing naturopathic doctors um, and they're scattered throughout, but I believe there's about half the states now. Uh, and a lot of the licensures are recent. Um, with recent bills that were introduced. So it seems like there is a resurgence and it's been going on now probably for maybe 50 years, but it's, it's really starting to pick up again. Now, do we only see naturopathic medicine pra being practiced in the U.S. or is it practiced in other countries? 
Right. So uh, there is a school in, or maybe two schools in Canada. So Canada licenses the profession. Um, I believe Australia, New Zealand as well. So there are practitioners that go to other countries that practice uh, unlicensed. So, you know, that usually means that they don't have uh, like associations, insurances, like malpractice type of insurances. So it's a little different. They, they probably aren't doing their full scope of their training, um, you know, because we are diagnosticians and we order labs, we order images, we refer to specialists. Uh, in other countries where they're not licensed, they're probably not doing that. And uh, is naturopathic medicine only used to address physical conditions? What about mental health? So, you know, it's holistic medicine. So it, it's definitely going to also address mental health. And, and there's a lot of therapeutics that we use. Um, and, you know, if we're thinking about the therapeutic order, um, a lot of physical medicine is used for just getting people moving, getting the circulation going, really helps with kind of more mild type of mental health issues. Uh, but then there are certain herbs and specific nutrients that we use at what we consider like therapeutic doses um, that do help influence mental health in, in many ways. So, yeah. Cool. In your bio, you mentioned your educational pursuits that that led to your career as a naturopathic doctor and licensed acupuncture, uh, acupuncturist. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about your origin story? Growing up, many yeah. of our parents, right, they asked us to be lawyers or doctors or nurses, yeah. engineers. And, but when we traditionally think of doctors, we're usually referring to Western medicine or they are, right? Yes. And we talked about that because of the popularity of it. Now, sure. how were you in particular introduced to naturopathic medicine and what were your deciding factors in choosing to pursue this modality over a degree mm. in Western medicine? Yeah, and it's true. I have lots of uh, family members that uh, were discouraging me that really wanted me to go towards uh, more of the medical degree, uh, MD degree or DO degree. Um, I was studying uh, science. I, I got a, a biochemistry bachelor's degree. Um, but, you know, before, even before then, when I was in junior high, I had a, a really good friend of mine who was Korean and his father was an acupuncturist. And that was where I was first introduced to it. And he actually gave my brother some treatments because he had some back pain. And so I always knew it was a modality that was an option, um, but I never thought I was going to be an acupuncturist, even when I was pursuing the naturopathic degree, which happened, uh, you know, right after college, um, I still didn't think I was going to do acupuncture, but it was the more mainstream type of what we consider alternative medicine. So most people have heard of acupuncture or maybe even have tried it. Um, but when I was in college, I was studying biochemistry. I was working in a lab. I worked as a pharmacy technician. So I was really on the more Western medicine side. Um, but when I did a study abroad program for a year in Sweden, I uh, started to, yeah, I was only 21, so I was still figuring out who I was, what I wanted to do. And I moved away from home and, you know, started buying my own groceries. And I discovered that there were options, uh, organic, you know, and that's the first time I saw that because I wasn't doing my own groceries when I was a teenager. Now, I had to ask people, what is this? And they, 
in Sweden, they called it ecologic. And then there was the standard that didn't have the ecologic. And of course it was cheaper. So <laughs> I was trying to budget, you know, and right. um, so yeah, some of the Swedes that I was living with, they, they said, yeah, this is uh, you know, meaning there's no chemicals. And so it really just started me thinking that, you know, I've been exposed to so many chemicals being in Western medicine, being in the lab and, you know, working at the pharmacy, really seeing the sources of chemical exposure was pretty widespread. And so that kind of got me thinking, okay, well, I want to be more clean, more natural. I, I, I think chemicals are important to learn about, but as far as putting it in my body, you know, I was pretty healthy. I didn't feel like if I were to go to the doctor, I would want to take certain chemically based medications. So at the pharmacy, I also realized people were going in, they were pulling stuff off the shelf in the vitamin section, the herb section, bringing it up to the pharmacist. And the pharmacist was always saying, Hey, yeah, it won't hurt, but not really giving any professional advice, you know? And, and so I thought, Hey, there's, there's a, you know, a niche there that could be filled in. And so when I was graduating at Cal State Fullerton with my uh, biochemistry degree, there was a career day and there was a booth for naturopathic medicine, a school in Seattle. And so that also kind of got me thinking, oh, there's actually this professional uh, uh, role that I could play and do all the things that I was thinking about. So I uh, pursued it a little more and there were some doctors in Orange County that I was able to visit and uh, they were really happy about their quality of life, what they were offering and uh, said, Hey, you know, it's, this is a, a profession that could work you know, here in California. And it just got licensed like right when I graduated. And, um, wow. and so, yeah, it, it was in, in California. It just got licensed and it had timing. Yeah. So it was good timing. Was while I was in school, it wasn't licensed uh, for California as a profession. And, and so I, I was one of the you know first couple hundred of practicing here in the, in California. That's a noteworthy thing to mention that you're one of the very first licensed naturopathic doctors. Yeah, uh, it's uh, pretty exciting. So, but it's really slow. You know, in California, it's really hard to get the scope expanded. Um, yeah. Some of the other states that have been licensing for 20, 30 years, they've done a lot of work. And so, you know, lobbyists and uh, associations and all that really helps to get a profession really established and expanded. So that's still in the works. Now, uh, when you talk about Sweden and how you first discovered ecological foods or what they called ecological foods, mm-hmm. I-, I noticed that Sweden's also a country that practices universal health care. Do you mm-hmm. think that there is a correlation between uh, universal health care and being able to provide these additional modalities when it comes to health? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I, when I moved there just for a year, I was there, I, I didn't even know anything about Sweden. I was there really to study and I kind of threw myself in there thinking, okay, well, you know, this, the classes are in English. That really helps. <laughs> Uh, but I learned so much about their um, their political system, and you know they are considered a like a social democratic state, 
Um, and so I talked to a lot of people about what that means. And they had a lot of refugees there also uh, from like the Middle East. And they were working in lots of different shops or as drivers. And, and so I got perspectives from them as well. And just kind of expanded my just uh, understanding of all of it. And, but I was still really, you know, really young and still learning about all of that. And so I didn't really make a lot of sense of it at the time until later. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering that because the other countries that you mentioned where they offer licensure in naturopathic medicine, you mentioned Canada, Australia, mm. New Zealand, those are all mm. countries also with universal health care. So I was also mm. wondering if there was a correlation there. That mm. But you know, I hear in Canada it's licensed, but it's not. Um, it's you have to pay out of pocket. It's not covered by their national uh, insurance. So, yeah, I, I don't know if that's going to change or if maybe some parts are covered. Because in some of our states, like in Washington and Oregon and Arizona, even our Medicare is covering naturopathic doctor services. So. You know, I think it depends on the type of services. If you're doing primary care, you're doing physical exams, probably going to get it covered, but maybe certain therapies are not. I, I haven't really looked into it, but I know that a lot of it is out of pocket. Yeah. Well, got it. I think also, right, when, that's one of the cr critiques to sometimes of universal health care is that there's more premium or there's more paid out of well, it depends. I should correct myself and say it depends on the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in Canada, that's what, yeah, that's how they handle it. Yeah. So, and you know, when people are um, really wanting to make changes, I think they pay for it and they really try to get their the most value out of it, you know, versus a um, insurance policy. Some like what we see, you know, people go to their their doctors and their doctors make suggestions, but they don't really, not everybody takes it seriously or, you know, they don't make the changes or they don't pick up the prescription meds and they don't really know how much the doctors are getting paid or how much it costs for a visit. You know, it's, there's a little disconnect there, I think. Um, so when people come and they pay out of pocket, they usually stick to the plan. So they get better. Right. Yeah. Well, that actually kind of leads to my next question, Dr. Richard, is um, you mentioned that you opened up your clinic, Integrative Natural Health, uh, which our episode is named after. Um, mm -hmm. In what year did you open it? And l let's start with, um, you said, is was it in Claremont where it's located? Yeah. So Claremont uh, in 2009, I opened it. Um, I, you know, I had some other doctors that were already working here that I was talking to. And they uh, mentioned the coast is always the best because that's where all the money is. Again, out-of-pocket expenses, you know, staying in, say, Santa Monica or Orange County is definitely going to be a better place for a cash practice. Um, but Claremont is a pretty affluent community that um, – I was told could support a practice like mine and there wasn't another naturopathic doctor close to here. Uh, the closest at the time was in Pasadena or in Redlands. And so it's like 30 minutes each way and location happened to be right next door to where my parents live in Pomona. So I, um, yeah, I, I took advantage of that, lived at my parents' house when I moved back for a year and uh, got my, my practice started. 
So 2009 to maybe 2012, it was really pretty rough just getting, you know, trying to get the clientele built up. Tell us more about that. How did you even roll out your practice or your your clinic being that yeah. the climate back then, not everyone is really even knew what naturopathic medicine was. Right. Yeah. And so, of course, you know, you, you, you rent out or you lease a building and hope for people just to show up. And and there were people in the community that did, but I wasn't in the village, like the downtown area. I was a little bit out. And so I had to really do some of the groundwork. I, I went to a lot of uh, fairs. I did some talks. Um, there were a couple churches that had events. So I would go and just talk with uh, at a booth or if they had an um, opportunity to go on stage and do a 15 minute spiel, you know, I would take advantage of that. And so uh, there were actually, a, there's a two churches called the Center for Spiritual Living here in Claremont and in, I think, Glendora or Covina area. And they're like a non-denominational church. So they have people from all cultures go there and everybody seemed to be open to doing alternative medicine because I got a lot of people interested and eventually becoming my patients. So that was a good place to really just start to lay down some of the roots. And, um, and then from there, you know, I did so much advertising that didn't pay off. I, I even had a commercial on TV, um, didn't see any returns. I had an ad on a, a TV at a gym, didn't see any returns. So it really ended up being just word of mouth. And uh, to this day, we still don't advertise. It's just all, you know, word of mouth. And social media, actually. But I, I haven't really been active on social media. Um, so, you know, it's, I think uh, it's something that people are looking for. And, and so people come from all over. Even the high desert, we, we have quite a few patients up in like Victorville that drive over an hour to get here. Um, so it's it's something that you, you know, people really look for and travel to go to. You mentioned earlier about when you first opened your practice that there were people that were re recommending that you open it in areas, in the coastal area where there was more affluence or even in neighborhoods, right, where there was, um, some money or affluence. I know that that's sometimes a thing like within our culture, right? Um, mm -hmm. Like our parents or our aunties and uncles saying, oh, you know, I don't want to buy that or because it's too expensive mm -hmm. or not wanting to pursue different routes because of the price yet. They'll spend money on their brand name bags, for example, right? right? <laughs> so, true. so how do you create access when you, you know, yeah. you would definitely think that um, more of our community or just people in general should invest in more preventive or natural measures and, you know, in this, you know, route or this modality, how do you create access when uh, more of our community is just so used to falling back on what their insurance can provide? Mm. Yeah, it, you know, when I first started, my prices were much lower, about probably half of what I'm charging now. Um, and of course, the financial environment is so different. 2009, we had a recession. And so and I started my business right in the middle of the recession. So I really had to make sure that I wasn't charging too much. 
And, and that really helped because I had people, even students, you know, that were coming and they were using our services. And so we got really busy and I ended up adding another uh, naturopathic doctor to my practice who specializes in, in seeing children. Um, Cause I don't see children. I was seeing some every once in a while, but when I added her, uh, our practice like doubled because we had two doctors and I was thinking, Oh, she's going to take my business, but it didn't work out that way. In fact, uh, more people wanted to come in. And, and so when that happened, we got super busy and, you know, people, they saved their money. They, they, because we weren't like, if, for an example, if you go to a practice in Santa Monica for a first visit, you'll probably end up spending $500 or more and just for the visit. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, I was charging at the time uh, about 180 bucks for the first visit, which is an hour and a half, you know, so we really spend a lot of time. Um, and once we got fully booked up and we, you know, our schedules were really hard to manage, we had to increase our prices. And so that's just kind of like business 101, right? And so right. we increase our price. And, and so over now, we've been here for 14 years. We've increased our prices maybe three or four times throughout. And every time we do, our business still remains very busy. So I think we're still doing all right. And we're not charging over $500 a visit. You know, we're still, you know, I have now a couple colleagues in the area. And so we're trying to make sure that we're not, um, too different in what we're charging. So especially being inland, you know, we know that we're in an area where there's a lot of people that could use our services. So we're trying to keep it in a, you know, reasonable price range. So, and so we still find that we, mm -hmm. you, uh, go ahead. So we still find that we have a lot of people that really, you know, just try to save the money for, the, the first initial visit and a couple of visits to, to really make the whole experience worthwhile. Do the number of visits also vary? Do Because um, I, I imagine that you also create, being that you're focusing on the body's natu natural ability to heal itself, mm -hmm. you, the number of visits might be less than going to a Western medical doctor where you might be more dependent on the, the medication or the level of care. That's true. Yeah. We actually say if they don't come back, then, Hey, we must have uh, <laughs> got them healed or got, got their body to heal themselves. So, Hey, that's all right. But um, yeah, you know, we, we do a lot of primary care. So there are patients that need to come in more frequently depending right. on, where they're at, you know, like, for example, if they have high blood sugar, high cholesterol, uh, they'll need to come in every three months to make sure that we're monitoring, you know, regularly, because that's, that's the standard of care. Um, but yeah, we teach them a lot. And we hope that when they get sick, they already know, you know, what they can do, because they've had that visit already, like, like a cold or upper respiratory infection. You know, we've, we've um, seen lots of patients where they have an acute visit and we set them up with a plan. And if they ever get sick again, they pull that plan out and, you know, they get all the, the different tools, supplements, whatever we gave them and they get it going. So 
that means they probably wouldn't need another visit unless things are different or getting worse. Okay. You mentioned uh, your initial assessment and having to go through that. So if someone were to be a new patient, walk into your clinic, uh, what, what would they expect? So there's the initial assessment mm-hmm. and then where would, where would you go from there? What services would you offer them depending on what you find you're finding? Yeah. So initial assessment is, is really big. It's really about gathering all the information and, and that's why we take an hour and a half to really get a f- thorough history, but also look at all of their previous lab reports from all their doctors or specialists. And sometimes they have a binder, you know, as people have a long medical history. So we really want to get a thorough understanding of everything. Um, and we do a physical exam. We often order more blood tests. Um, being that we are naturopathic doctors, we're trying to also test holistically as well. So sometimes we'll do stool tests or saliva tests or urine and blood, sometimes a combination of all of them. Um, so hour and a half is just enough time to get all of that. Um, and then a lot of times we'll just put together a more of a foundational plan on that visit where we make sure that they know what it means to eat protein with every meal, um, to sleep, and what it means to have good sleep. And, you know, just the basic foundational plan can get them started in making little tweaks to their lifestyle. But the second visit is where we're going to get more of the results from what we tested in the first visit. And from there, we interpret everything and we build on the plan where we start to be more specific, where they might need to take certain supplements or certain herbs, depending on what those results said and what symptoms they have. Um, and they might even include acupuncture. Say they're dealing with you know back pain, neck pain, a lot of stress, digestive issues. You know, we can definitely build an acupuncture plan where they come in sometimes every week. Um, some patients, like uh, if it's say cancer. We have certain protocols where we use IV nutrient therapy and patients will come in weekly to get an IV of high dose vitamin C. Uh, Glutathione is another one. Um, So, you know, it all depends on what we're dealing with. And being that we're general practitioners, we see everything and every condition. And there's always something that we can do, you know, something, even if it's not going to cure them, it's something that will help support their body to hopefully start getting down towards that path of either cure or managing whatever they're needing to manage better. In what instances would you refer out or work with addition, I guess, additional additional practitioners within their whole healthcare Mm. plan? Yeah. Um, So cancer for sure, you know, because I'm so limited into I can't do biopsies. Um, I know that some patients need higher intervention treatments like chemotherapy, radiation. So there are some you know, cases where we are the ones that diagnose the cancer. Uh, maybe we do a blood panel. We see they might have some blood cancer going on, but they didn't know. And so you know, referring them to get all of the proper tests and also being offered the standard of you know, medical treatment 
So we can either have them decide, you know, do a combination of naturopathic medicine, conventional medicine, um, or if they're going to do all conventional medicine, maybe there are still some things that we could do to help, say, reduce side or make sure that, you know, they're not harming their healthy cells. You know, there are lots of um, kind of approaches we could take with that. Um, so cancer, for sure, we would uh, want to refer out to get an oncologist on board. Um, cardiovascular health often will need more sophisticated testing like the stress test and the EKGs. You know, it's all good information to have when it comes to um, diagnosis. Uh, but when it comes to treatment, patients will want to decide, you know, do I want to go with more conventional, more natural combinations? Uh, are there alternatives to certain medications? Are there interactions? So that's really where we can help figure that part out. Okay, so they don't have to exist separately. You can definitely, no. you know, use naturopathic medicine to coincide mm. with the conventional medicine that a patient is also undergoing. Yes, yes. And, you know, there are some people that have different philosophies and some people will say, I don't want anything to do with Western medicine. Okay, well, you know, let's see if we can try to make some changes and, uh, you know, if we can help you with only naturopathic medicine, let's give it a try. But I also make sure that I kind of plant the seed like, hey, if, you know, a few months, if things aren't changing, I think we need to consider something else, you know. So that way they get a little bit of that kind of just plant that seed and see, you know, if it's something that they are going to consider, they, they have that as an option. Yeah. Um, I, I don't like to be like, okay, black and white, you know, I, I want to make sure people stay open. Yeah. Right. Well, I think we're at a great first half of talking with you, Dr. Richard. It, it's been really a great experience just learning more about preventative medicine. Um, I'd like to thank you all for joining us for our final episode of season two. We're talking with naturopathic doctor and licensed acupuncturist, Dr. David Richard. Feel free to take a quick stretch, refill your water or tea. We'll be right back after this quick break. Welcome back to Philippine Exton Wellness. You were just listening to the first part of At First Glance by Ruin Pears off of their EP, No Place, No Place, released in 2017. You can help support Ruin Pears by following them on Facebook or on Instagram at Ruined Pears. 
and that's Paris, P-A-I-R-S. Rune Pairs consists of Silent John, producer, audio engineer, DJ, and member of the Boom Bap Kids, and Jean Bautista, musician for Beat Ventriloquist, Wear Patterns, Nuka Luka, One Two, and Josh One. You can find our music on Amazon, Pandora, Spotify, YouTube, Apple Music, iHeart, Deezer, and SoundCloud. Shout out to our Philippine X musicians out there laying down the track. Returning from our break, we've been talking with Dr. David Richard about integrative natural health. Dr. Richard, we spent the first half talking about your personal journey, your origin story, and some of the modalities that you offer at your clinic. As we were preparing for this episode, we talked about exploring naturopathic medicine's approach to testing and treatment of cardiovascular risk factors since heart disease is prevalent in our community. Let's explore that now. What are um, some of the ways that your clinic addresses cardiovascular risk factors such as heart disease? Mm. Yeah, so, you know, we really look at cardiovascular health um, as far as risk factors, there are many and they often involve multiple systems. So not just the heart, but could involve the hormonal system uh, with blood sugar control um, in the immune system when there's a lot of inflammation. Um, And so I often will want to look at a a good panel of blood testing, as well as looking at their overall health as far as weight, lifestyle choices, diet. Um, But when it comes to heart disease testing, I think naturopathic doctors really do shine in this area um, because, you know, when you go to say a cardiologist, they'll often do a, put you, hook you up to a bunch of machines, maybe a treadmill, get, you know, some data on when you're at rest, when you're um, say running or um, doing various activities. And, and that's really good information because that's stuff that I really don't have access to in my office. Um, but when it comes to blood testing, often they only check maybe cholesterol. And cholesterol, you know, is a model that's been around for a long time. It's It's been around for many years, and it, it's actually kind of dated. And there's a lot more that we could be doing and testing to figure out overall risk of heart disease. And so I always want to look at not just cholesterol, but we call an advanced lipid panel where they're looking at the standard cholesterol panel, but then they also look at the good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, or what we call HDLs for the good, LDLs for the bad, and look at different sizes uh, because they know uh, that larger LDLs, which are the bad, are actually harmless, but the small dense ones are the most risky. And the oxidized LDLs are the ones that make up the plaque in the arteries and are very risky. And so we could actually test those and see, you know, yeah, your LDL is high, but are they mostly large or are they mostly in this risky, small, dense form? Um, So that's just an example of what we call a advanced lipid panel. Um, But then also looking at inflammation markers, because when you have inflammation, usually it's supposed to go up and then go down. You know, say you get sick, your inflammation spikes, and then you get better, it goes down. 
or you sprain your ankle, it gets red, swollen, inflamed, and then it heals and goes down. But there are some people that walk around with a lots of inflammation all the time, and that damages the arteries. And when that happens, that's when the plaque starts to get in, starts to build up, and now you're looking at clogged arteries. So inflammation markers, there's quite a few of them, um, but CRP is a pretty typical one that you, you medical doctors use for rheumatology to see if you have an autoimmune disease and they could track it. But we know that inflammation is also involved in heart disease, so I like to look at that. Um, there's also specific markers for inflammation of the arteries, and one of them is called LPPLA2. Um, that one is pretty new test, but it will tell me if your arteries and the plaque are unstable, because that usually means if it's unstable, you might actually throw a clot and that could mean a stroke or a heart attack. You know, so testing the inflammation markers are really important. And I, I, I really want to make sure that when I see it, that we try to figure out where it's coming from. So some people have food sensitivities, you know, you may have heard of gluten sensitivities, dairy sensitivities. Yeah. And I'm both. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot of them and they could even be foods you think of are healthy, you know, almonds, nuts, seeds. If you're reacting to them, they're not so healthy for you. And that could lead to chronic inflammation. And so, you know, looking for those sources, um, some people have underlying infections, you know, they might have, um, an overgrowth of yeast or bacteria in their digestive system. And they're always dealing with digestive symptoms like bloating or diarrhea. And, you know, that could be something that could be treated and also a source of inflammation. So, you know, really trying to figure out where inflammation comes from and then treating it and hopefully getting all of those markers to go back to normal can really help overall in somebody's treatment in cardiovascular disease. So, but yeah, diet plays a big role. You know, it, it is something that, unfortunately, Filipinos are, you know, people that tend to have a lot of cardiovascular disease, a lot of diabetes. Um, so when we look at a uh, typical diet, we do see a lot of animal products, you know, and animal products in general aren't bad, but when you only have a certain type where there's, I don't know if you've heard of omega-3, omega-6s. Mm -hmm. These are fats that are in animal products. So omega-3s tend to be in more of the fish. When omega-6s are in the beef, chicken, pork, most land animals. And they're inflammatory. And so it's really more about the ratio. When you have more of the omega-3s, you tend to have a ratio that skews towards anti-inflammatory. And so... When we talk about like the Filipino diet, yeah, there's fish in there, but it's, you know, pretty fried or soaked in other oils that might be omega-6s. Um, but there's also a lot of omega-6 sources like pork and uh, that, you know, could definitely outweigh the amount of omega-3. So, yeah, now you're in more of a pro-inflammatory state or susceptibility. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely dietary changes when it comes to, you know, that, that sort of omega-3, omega-6. But also the amount of rice tends to be quite a bit, even compared to other Asian countries. You, you know, I, you, may, you mentioned I went to China, to Shanghai. Um, when I ate there, I, 
I thought it was going to be more like Filipino cuisine where you have a lot of rice on the plate. But what I noticed is they eat rice at the end of the meal. So they have lots of vegetables. There's a little bit of meat mixed into it. But at the very end of the meal, they ask for rice to kind of top them off um, to get them a little more satisfied. And it's not even that much. So I was thinking, wow, yeah, I, I was <laughs> thinking it was going to be completely different because we're used to even going to the Chinese food restaurants here. You know, you get a big mound of rice and then they throw the everything on top of it. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, I think that that could play a big role in uh, blood sugar control is uh, the amount of uh, white rice that's eat, especially with Filipino cuisine. Well, when you talk about inflammation, I do want to talk about food, but I, I want to come back to inflammation. When you talk about inflammation, I automatically think about gut health. But mm. is there is it beyond inflammation of the gut? Are there other... Mm organs in the body that can become yeah. inflamed and contribute to yeah these health conditions that we're seeing well uh autoimmune diseases can play a big role you know if somebody has rheumatoid arthritis or um, lupus um, psoriatic arthritis you know these conditions unfortunately their immune system is in that state where it's always inflamed and the markers that i mentioned are what rheumatologists use to follow if their treatments are working or not. So when somebody has an autoimmune disease, they also are contributing to heart health and heart disease risk, unfortunately. Um, and so a lot of these patients, uh, and it's really common, you know, um, they're, and they end up getting put on steroid medications or more higher intervention to get their inflammation under control. So a lot of patients that come here, yeah, we, we try to figure out, you know, how to get their inflammation under control, but we kind of take it in a, a different approach. Instead of using steroids, we'll look at gut health, you know, because that often is where an autoimmune disease can start, where if you have a lot of inflammation there, it causes, I don't know if you've heard of leaky gut. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the inflammation of the uh, digestive system can cause you to absorb more than you normally would absorb because everything is inflamed and that gets your immune system triggered and so yeah you start to have uncontrolled inflammation and so that's usually when we have a patient coming in with an autoimmune disease where we start is looking at their gut health so it's a big part of it but you know some people have good gut health but they still have an autoimmune disease and um, you know, that's going to be you know, hard on their whole, their whole cardiovascular system. Got it. Let's go back and further deconstruct this Filipino diet from a naturopathic lens. I'm curious to, I, I can you already imagine some of our listeners and viewers being like, what do you mean I have to cut out the lechon kowali or the, <laughs> the, or the like belief that I like to eat with my vinegar and like right. what what is rice other than white rice you know <laughs> <Right>. and, <laughs> and I mean you know and just thinking too though you know with with our culture rice also was such a big part of the plate or or the diet i think from from what i see because it also 
was related to our country being a third world country, right? Mm, and yeah. and some of the fastest ways that you can satisfy your hunger is with rice. And yeah. I'm not sure if, if that's where why we've placed so much emphasis on the amount of rice, but oftentimes you hear family members saying that's the fastest way to get full is to just yeah. fill your bellies with, with rice, especially when you go through you know the history of war and food isn't always something that that's easily come by that's true but how do we further deconstruct this from a mm. like a naturopathic lens mm. knowing that we have diabetes gout mm. you know mm. these cardiovascular yeah. and now cancer that we're seeing in our communities mm. um how would you tell like your cousin, your, you know, mm. or people, your family members, how they can eat differently. Because I've, I've also seen a rise of vegan, you know, mm. uh, Philippine cuisine, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, people that just only eat our pescatarian diets. Mm-hmm. So where would you go? Um, you know, how would you even start with a relative that needs to address mm. these types of health conditions? But they're right. so used to like eating the pandesal or or the or the insamada or like mm. you know the halo halo and and the lichun kawali. Like wh- yeah. where would you go? Oh, I'm telling you, this is a battle. <laughs> like with my own family, uh, it's hard, and I I always try to emphasize blood sugar control because that's usually what is the problem. You know, we often will see pre-diabetes really young in, you know, a lot of people in their 30s. And by the time they're in their 40s, they might have full-blown diabetes. And so, you know, blood sugar control, I think, could definitely be prevented if you make the changes early on. Um, And it often is the rice, you know, and that's the last thing that Filipinos want to it changed, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh, the white rice tastes so good. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, I also try to replace, you know, because you can't just say stop something. Then there's going to be a calorie void, of course. Right. Um, and so, you know, having foods that are more, um, that, that add to uh, the satisfaction, the feeling full, often would be more fibrous foods. And so adding in more vegetables and healthier oils with that, you know, olive oil or avocado oil, because there's going to be more of the calories there to replace that, you know, void that you get when you reduce the rice. Um, And I I usually tell people an easy guideline would be to start with counting five to 10 bites of rice that's your limit for your meal. And most people, you know, they, they could do that because they're not having to think about calories or how much it weighs, you know, because when you use some of the apps that track your, your diet, you often have to put in, you know, a, a cup of rice or this, you know, measurement that they might not be doing. So a five bite rule, pretty easy. Most people can do that. And so right. I, I say, okay, five bites of rice, the rest of your plate, focus on vegetables and a good protein source. If it's lean, it's even better. So that would mean like chicken breast or um, if it's going to be beef, then it should be more of the lean cuts. 
you know, filet mignon. It's, it's more expensive, but it is definitely leaner than a ribeye, you know. Um, but yeah, trying to shift things over to focusing on protein and veggies versus the rice can make a huge difference. And if they also have high cholesterol, okay, now we got to think about, you know, the, the saturated fat that could be coming from, the, you know, more of the animal, like I was telling you, omega-6s and trying to get things that are more lean would be best. So I find that people can do that, uh, at least to get them started. And then if they see their labs changing, then it could motivate them to keep it going. So the five by rule, I think, is it, it comes a long way. <laughs> I like that five to ten buys. It just gets harder when you eat out, right? It, yeah, it's, uh, Filipinos love their Chinese food when they eat out, especially for um, special occasions. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so you know, it, it's try to eat like they do in Shanghai, <laughs> where they have the rice at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's hard when when you eat out, you have to expect that you're going to eat a lot more calories than you probably should, mm -hmm. and, and so you're probably going to eat a lot of other things too that you probably wouldn't eat at home. So yeah, I mean, I have less. I have friends that are probably going to hear this and being like, "No, I cannot give up the Wonderless ice cream. I can't <laughs> give up." Like, so I also. <laughs> so I also make sure that they have those things, just leave it as a treat, you know, once a week or have a cheat meal. That way right. they can have something that they really love that probably isn't good to have every day. <laughs> so, yeah. so it keeps them in the game. And I think a lot, some people are all or nothing, but most people would like to have their treat, you know, every once in a while. And so it's kind of a reward if they could do really good during the week. So Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was curious if you have any vegetables, like in like Philippine vegetables that you like push in the diet or any herbs that are from the Philippines that wouldn't be so much of a stretch because sometimes when we're making adjustments right to diet, it's harder when it's outside of what you're used to purchasing in the market. Yeah, so if someone were to go into like a seafood city and, and they're dealing with yeah. these types of medical conditions, are there certain vegetables or like herbs that you would say is, a, you know, easier to introduce mm -hmm. into the, their diet? Well, for sure, you know, the cabbage family foods like um, gailan, you know, that's something that um, Chinese broccoli you can find in Filipino restaurants Thai restaurants, Chinese, it's everywhere. Um, bitter melon, you know, that is definitely a specific food that is more in Filipino cuisine. Um, it's bitter though, so not everybody really likes it, but it is <laughs> one that helps with diabetes and, and lowers blood sugar. Um, and you can find it in supplement forms, but also can get it into your diet. Um, ginger, another really good uh, medicinal herb that is anti-inflammatory, very good for the digestive system. Uh, so it can be, you know, a, a staple in the Filipino diet. And I see it in a lot of cuisines and, you know, you can do more of it. Uh, there's always room for more ginger. Uh, garlic and onions, also very important for the blood pressure, heart disease, immune system, anti-inflammatory, antimicrobial. So lots of good properties with even just those, food, you know, spices, but you could do a lot with those. Um, 
with the cabbage family, there's a lot of uh, medicinal properties. You know, it, it helps support the liver detoxification, but also lots of fiber. Um, and most people like those foods, right? I think most people can eat cabbage or eat broccoli, maybe not Brussels sprouts. I think it's a little bit too potent for some palates, but yeah, uh, yeah. most of the, the cabbage family is, uh, is doable. I think a lot of people can eat those. And even if you just steam it, it it's, it's edible, right? So. Right. And yeah. substitutes for white rice or, you know, rice yeah. noodles. Right. So there are lots of alternatives now, especially here in the, in the U.S. and in California. You know, there's quinoa. Uh, you could definitely go with brown, brown rice or wild rice. There's going to be more fiber. And that's what it is. They strip the fiber and then that's how they come up with white rice. Um, so if you got the more whole food version, you're going to have more fiber there. And it's going to also slow the absorption of sugar into your bloodstream so you don't get that big spike. Um, and that's also important to know that, you know, you have to have a combination of those macronutrients. Like you have to have protein, you have to have some fat when you're eating the rice because it's otherwise it will spike your blood sugar and the other foods tend to slow the absorption. Um, so when you're snacking or having some desserts, you know, it's, it's good to make sure that you have it with the, those other foods and not just by itself. So for our vegans and vegetarians, what types yeah. of proteins would, would you recommend to help balance their diet? Yeah, so proteins are so important. And that's usually where people fall short. Uh, you know, there's a lot of vegans that are not thriving because of that reason is uh, they're not getting enough protein. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of soy products out there, but there's also a lot of GMO soy so having organic soy products are going to be the better choice. I know there's a lot of guys that are wanting to stay away from it because of the estrogen properties, but um, soy phytoestrogen is really not a strong estrogen. And they find that you really have to eat a lot of it to really have any estrogenic effect. So I think if you're a vegan or vegetarian, that's probably going to be the main source of protein is soy products. Uh, nuts and seeds, beans also have, but, you know, some people can end up with a lot of starch and if they're eating beans mostly, nuts and seeds, they're good, but they're also high in calories. So, you know, people are trying to lose weight or, um, you know, you, can, you really have to make sure that, you know, you can't eat a whole thing of say peanuts because that's going to be like 3000 calories right there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then there's a lot of protein sources uh, in supplement form. You know, there are uh, protein powders that are, that are fairly good. You know, a lot of people are doing collagen uh, because collagen also has the benefit of helping your, your joints, your skin, your hair, nails. So that is a protein source, but it's not vegan. So so, you know, some people will definitely not want that. Um, yeah. But a lot of the other ones that are vegan protein powders are usually from pea or brown rice uh, combination. So, you know, that's that's an option. I think it's better than not eating any protein. Uh, it's, it's something that will at least help you get a certain amount. Got it. I, I was going to... 
maybe we could touch on this briefly because I, I also wanted to talk to you, Dr. Richard, about cancer. We're seeing yeah. um, an increase in cancer. I mean, um, among our age group, surprisingly. So you started to talk about this when you were talking about your treatment. You mentioned um, you do a higher dosage of vitamin C. Um, I was curious about that because is is there also a dosage that's an unhealthy dose of vitamin mm. C when it's too high? And then you right. you mentioned um, another type of treatment. So what is your approach to cancer mm. at your clinic? Yeah. So definitely want to make sure that they know where they're at with it. You know, if it's state, what stage it is. Um, also, what treatments they're on, because some of them can have a lot of side effects. And we do have a lot of um, treatments that can help with preventing of side effects from chemotherapy. Um, but as far as what we offer for treatments, you know, protecting nerves, definitely if they're on chemotherapy is a big part of it. Um, but high dose vitamin C at a high dose does act like chemotherapy. Um, so just to give you an example, when we take vitamin C as a supplement, orally, we take about a thousand milligrams and that's enough to get absorbed. In fact, that's about as much as we can absorb. But then when we have it in an IV, we can go up to a hundred grams or a hundred thousand milligrams in a bag that drips over a couple of hours. And so that's a big difference. And when it's at that high dose, usually if it's above 25 grams or 25,000 milligrams, it has actually has an oxidative effect versus an antioxidative effect. And so oxidative effect is what chemo does. And so it can actually kill tumor cells at a high dose. And so, you know, there, I have some patients, I actually have one that had stage four breast cancer and she does high dose vitamin C every week, as well as a lot of other treatments. And she's also on a vegan keto diet, takes a lot of supplements. She's cancer free. She's had, um, three PET scans that show no activity. So, you know, that's a patient that responded really well to wow. a lot of different treatments and she didn't do chemo. She did some hormone therapy, you know, for blocking some of the receptors, but mm -hmm. that's definitely uh, an example of somebody that did everything <laughs> uh, yeah. as far as naturopathic medicine is concerned and got a really good response. So, right. That's pretty that's incredible. Yeah, it is. And so she's really grateful, you know, that she has all of these options. And, you know, she she tries to get a lot of it covered, you know, through her insurance, but she uh -huh. does have a lot of out-of-pocket expense too. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, a lot of the alternative therapies, unfortunately, you'll have to try to figure out how to pay for it. And yeah. So, you know, sometimes Medicare will pay is, is if you can find out how to bill. Uh-huh. How, and how do you interface with, I know we were talking about pharmaceuticals in our first half. How do you interface with, with patients that are using pharmaceutical medication, psychotropic medicines, if they have mental health conditions, or yeah. um, how do you assess when you're administering herbs, right? 
um, what the contraindications are or even um, to know what they can tolerate. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a tricky one. Um, you know, usually if somebody has uh, a diagnosis of a mental health condition and they're on medication and they're stable, you know, that's a really good sign that the medication is working. Um, and we don't usually want to really mess with it. You know, there, there could be other symptoms that they're experiencing that need addressing. Um, so that's kind of where we would go first. And if they express that they want to get off the medication, then we really have to figure out, you know, what the best approach is. Um, and a lot of times it means they need to wean off of what they're on. And while they're doing that, we try to support neurotransmitter health. And so there are lots of nutrients, also herbs that support, say, serotonin, dopamine. While they're getting off their medications, you know, hopefully they'll have a smooth transition. But a lot of patients have, have you know, struggles with that. And and I, you know, just tell them like, you know, this medication, if they were stable, was working for you. So you can always go back to it. Um, so, you know, a lot of there, there's definitely a, a struggle there, though. And, and, and then there are people that want more tools, you know, because they use, say, an as needed anti-anxiety medication. And they might be able to use something else that could work, but not have that addictive quality and maybe use that anti-anxiety medication on the back burner if, say, the anxiety ramps up to a panic attack. Okay, we've got a tool for that. You know, so there's kind of like a, a gradient of treatments that we try to use that are, aren't as harmful, if that makes sense. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Now let's... So, Go ahead. <laughs> we... Well, I was going to say, I see a lot of, especially during the pandemic, I saw a lot of patients yeah. uh, for anxiety and stress and a lot of teachers, a lot of healthcare workers. Oh, for and, sure. Yeah. So we use a lot of our tools. You know, a lot of them ended up doing acupuncture, um, really using a lot of the herbs that tend to be more calming, addressing mm. things like cortisol excess. And, mm. and so, there's a, there's a place for naturopathic medicine when it comes to really, you know, addressing mental health without using too much medication because too much could be, you know, very sedative really and kind of shut things down. Yeah. We're also seeing um, the increase of anxiety and depression among young, young children too. Right. And, and youth. So I'm sure when you're administering herbs, you're also adjusting the dosages you know, yeah. accordingly. So we know, you know, which herbs will affect certain, say, neurotransmitters, or if it affects the liver, then, you know, certain medications might not work the same. So we have to yeah. check all of that, yeah, and, and adjust things as, you know, we go along. Yeah, and there's lots of courses. You know, I have to take continuing ed every year, and, uh, and we are required to do pharmaceutical hours as well. So... So we really try to know, you know, the, what medications people are on and what they interact with. That's cool. Keep, yeah. keep their um, knowledge current for sure. Exactly. <laughs> and for members of our community um, that are interested in your clinic services, uh, we talked about your intake pro uh, process um, and you also mentioned cash payment. Do you accept any insurance? So, there are people that have PPO insurances that will cover the labs. So we use Quest Diagnostics, LabCorp, and 
the PPO insurances usually cover all the labs. They don't cover our consultations. Um, but I also have some patients that have something called a HSA or health savings account through their job where they can use that here for the consultations. Uh, But most of the time it's out of pocket and we could give a super bill with all the coding and some patients get some reimbursement, some don't, you know, it all depends on their plan. Right. And then being that we have a global audience, Let's talk about other naturopathic practitioners or licensed acupuncturists that you'd like to shout out or recommend in other areas. You know, I was trying to come up with a list. I came short. It's okay. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I don't have any right now. But well, I'll, I'll email up. you some. Yeah, okay. if I uh, come up with some, I yeah. And we'll share them on our platforms, especially for our folks listening um, in Seattle, I just saw our recent diagnostics, and um, we do have listeners that are listening throughout the globe. So definitely, oh, okay. we can um, plug those practitioners if you have any to recommend. Yeah, uh, and if if you have it on the YouTube, in the comment section, would I be able to drop any of the names down? Yeah, there we or, could go to. Yeah. We could. So if not, if it, I'm not sure if it's deactivated, but if not, I'll make sure to find a way to include them for sure. Yeah. Cool. And before we close, we always like to ask our guests, what are your own wellness practices? So clearly you're a naturopathic doctor, a licensed acupuncturist. Um, You must have a full almost clientele caseload. So what do you do do for self-care that might be inspirational for other individuals that are listening? I really... I'm an outdoors person. You know, I love to go out and connect with nature. So hiking has been my passion for over a decade. Um, I don't know if everybody knows where Mount Whitney is, uh, but it's the highest point here in the lower 48 in in the U.S. Uh And I've climbed it every year for 12 years. So that's, yeah. (laughs) How many miles or like kilometers is that for our our folks on the metric system? How many uh, miles? Yeah. Well, there are multiple routes, but the main route is 22 miles round trip and it goes up to 14,500 feet. So the the oxygen is very low. The air is very thin. Um, I usually like to do an overnight um, or two nights uh, so I can, you know, really experience everything and not always have to just keep going and going. Um, So, yeah, hiking has been my passion. Uh, Mountain biking. Uh, recently, I've been really serious on weight training. I think muscle tone, muscle mass is very important as we age because we do tend to lose that. And I'm in my 40s now, so I want to make sure that I, it's like insurance that I get my muscle mass on for my 50s and 60s and whatever. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's a big protect part of it. It protects your bones, your joints, even yeah. your immune system. There were studies that showed people that had more muscle mass and they got COVID they didn't do as bad. So yeah. And even with diabetes, because muscles are like a sponge for sugar. Uh, We store sugar in our muscles. So it can be really helpful for people that have, uh, you know, blood sugar issues. Yeah. So so yeah, I've been focused on that. I just finished a six month, uh, pretty intensive uh, weight training program. So yeah, right now for a week. (laughs) But, But yeah, 
uh, so I'm pretty active and, and I also take a lot of uh, supplements and, you know, uh, also working on mobility. I do Pilates every week, uh, yoga, cool. stretching. Yeah. So, yeah. It really takes, you know, the full thing, not just like cardio or just weight training. You should be stretching and doing all of it. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about that this week. I was like, I need yoga back in my life. Yeah. <laughs> well, come sit down. <laughs> I know and so for those of you that are obsessed with your Peloton bikes you can add some more weight training to that do it yes it'll pay off you know and too much cardio could be a bad thing <laughs> you know you start burning your muscle mass so yeah so just like balancing your plate you got to balance your exercise exactly yeah moderation so as we begin to close, how can our listeners find you if they have additional questions? So uh, Integrative Natural Health in Claremont, you can do a search. Uh, my website is integrativenathealth.com. And I also have a store uh, for supplements called storeinh.com. And there's a promo code PhilippineX for 10% off. And uh, it'll always be open. So anybody, you know, even a year from now, they want to use Philippine X, they can get on my website. Thank you. We appreciate that. Of course. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Richard, for talking to our community about integrative natural health. We're so honored to have featured you on our podcast for our community to learn about the preventative approach through naturopathic medicine and acupuncture. We are excited to witness how your journey continues to unfold and are here to support you as your Philippine X and Wellness family. All right, my pleasure. And to our listeners, look out for our next episode. We will be featuring Ness Marco Morales, a registered dental hygienist and capoeirista, founder of Capoeira Batuque, Daily City. This will be our first episode of season three and will be aired on Wellness Wednesdays on April 12th. As we close, we'd like to say thank you to our guest speaker, Dr. David Richard, our social media strategist, Kathleen Torrio, our designer, Richie, Ruin Pairs for consent to use your track at first glance that you heard during our break. Our advisors, Alison Taylor Cruz, Rian Delos Reyes, and Safo Tialogo. Our community partners is Filipino American Life, SoCal Filipinos, and Trek Table, and all of our community members for your shares and support. As always, we'll share more about our guest speakers' offerings on our Instagram stories and highlights for permanent access with any of our upcoming events. Be sure to follow us at Philippine X and Wellness on Instagram, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and on Twitter at Philippine X the letter N, well, followed by the letters N and S. Don't forget to continue to hit the subscribe button on our Philippine X and Wellness YouTube channel. Thank you always for believing in us. Be well, everyone. Continue to take care of yourselves and each other. Daghang salamat. Salamat.